Hi, dear friends. Welcome to Love Service Wisdom with myself, Radha. I am in conversation today with a absolutely delightful human being, Sita Ramdas. Sita Ramdas spent several years serving his beloved teacher Ramdas on Maui, where he was shown the path of bhakti, the yoga of service and devotion to God. And through his writings, music, teachings, workshops, and one-on-one counseling, Sita Ramdas works to strengthen our sense of the timeless sacred in today's modern and fast-paced world. His new book, From and For God, which is incredible, I've been reading it myself, it's like short essays on bhakti and devotion and his time with Ramdas. It's available now on all online retailers, and you can go to fromandforgod.com for more information. And Sita Ram Das is going to donate 100% of his profits from the book to Hanuman Maui, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that continues Ram Das's presence on Maui. It's basically the home that Ram Das lived in for the past 20 plus years, and after his passing has been turned into a sanctuary. Hanuman Maui upholds Ramdas's teachings of love, service, and devotion through the Loving Awareness Sanctuary, and they are in the process of building a new Hanuman Mandir or Hanuman Temple. And you can learn more about all of that at hanumanmaui.org. And half the proceeds are specifically designated for Kripa's service projects through the Sacred Community Project, a program under the direct fiscal sponsorship of Hanuman Maui. Kripa works to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices through affordable, free, and donation-based offerings, spiritual support, and prison outreach. And you can learn more about Kripa at Kripa, K-R-I-P-A dot guru. And of course, you can learn more about Sita Ramdas by contacting him at sitaramdas.com. I'll put all these links in the show notes. And like I said, I think you're going to love this really beautiful conversation with Sita Ramdas about his life and his work and his practices. And he talks to us about bhakti yoga, which if you know me, you know, it's one of my most favorite yogic paths, the path of devotion and love. So we get into that just a little bit. I led my bhakti weekend training a few weeks ago, and it was just spectacular. It was so good. It was the first time I've ever learned, led a three-day immersion just into bhakti and had my friends Govindas and Sheila bringing in Brent Cooker help as well. There's some of my bhakti teachers. And we raised almost $700 for Give India, a nonprofit that's supporting the COVID relief um, efforts for India right now. So that was really beautiful and uplifting also. And I'm launching my new 200-hour yoga teacher training. So for any of you out there that are listening and are interested in becoming a yoga teacher and a, a yoga teacher that's not just this is how I teach a yoga class and move people through an asana, a posture sequence, but a yoga teacher really like 
a lifelong yogi, like your heart and soul and dharma, your path is devoted to your own journey of self-discovery, self-inquiry, self-awakening. And for me, the process of becoming a yoga teacher back in 2002 helped me to discover how can I become the best human possible and how can I mature and how can I how can I figure my shit out and how can I have tools to help me figure my shit out? That's what yoga teacher training did for me. And that's what I helped to impart in all of my yoga teacher training programs. I've been leading them, co-leading them uh, here in Boise since 2016. And now I'm on my own and I'm really excited about this version of the teacher training where there'll be part modules here in Boise modules with myself and one of my co-leads, Rainbow Eric, who's been on the podcast a few times, and then immersions in yoga and social justice and trauma-informed yoga, anatomy and physiology, and then the overarching container is this self-inquiry yoga psychology, who am I, what am I, why am I here, what is this human experience about, what is the nature of reality, and how can I turn inward to answer some of those questions? So we'll work here in Boise starting in August, one weekend a month. And then in February, February 12th through the 23rd, the whole group of us will go down to Teotihuacan, Mexico, one of my most favorite places to be and teach and lead and reset. I've been going down there since 2008 and we'll have... 12 days down there together where we will, we will be finishing up our teacher training and we'll also be doing the work that I lead groups through in Teo, which is in the Toltec shamanic tradition from the lineage, the Eagle Knight lineage of Don Miguel Ruiz, who is a teacher of my teacher. So it's pretty darn awesome. It's a pretty cool setup for a yoga teacher training. If you want to learn more, you can go to my website, sageyogaboise.com. That's sageyogaboise.com. And there's a tab with all the details. And there's a $300 early bird discount if you sign up by July 1st. So consider it. Consider it, you guys. If you have any questions, there's going to be an info night here in Boise and on on Zoom simultaneously uh, June 15th. So there's that. Or you just send me a message and I'm totally happy to find some time to chat with you about it. But it'll be a fairly small group. And like I said, it's not just how do I teach poses, but how do I do this life thing? And how can I do this life thing to the best of my abilities? And I want some support doing this life thing. If you want me to support you in the life thing, reach out because this could be really, really great for you. And with that... Let me give you Sita Ramdas. Thanks, everyone. Welcome, Sita Ramdas. Welcome to Love Service Wisdom. I feel grateful to have you as a guest, and I can't wait to see where this conversation goes. So, thank you for your time. Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to to be here and to chat with you. Yeah, yeah you. Um, since your book from and for God to Krishna 
and you were on his podcast. And of course I picked it up and I just loved it. I loved it so much. I love the stories. I love the wisdom. I love the poetry. I haven't gotten through all of it. It's kind of a book that I have around, like it's on my desk right now. And then it was on the coffee table and then it was on the bedside that I just pick up and read instead of start to finish, you know? Sure. Because there's wisdom all throughout it. And I guess maybe my I'm first curious about um, when did you start writing it? It seems like essays that you had or blog posts that you had. Is that true? Yeah, it's it's definitely a collection of writings from over a decade. And you know, some of the earliest poems were written when I was on Maui. At, you know, I was a caregiver for Ramdas, and so. A lot of them were written even then, which was about 10 years ago. So, so yeah, in that sense, I've been writing it for over a decade. But the decision to put my writings in book form was a common... I mean, just over years, just different people from the satsang, friends would just be like, I'd love to have your writings in book form. And I'd hear that, I'd be like, okay, I don't know. And, and then I think just with the pandemic and COVID and having extra time on my hands and also having... Uh, these projects that are really near and dear to my heart that needed money raised for it. Just, I had both time and needed some extra coping strategies, you know, things to do. And also had, you know, a real reason to put it together. And so it was a year of, it was a year of work of just putting all these writings together so they could be in book form in terms of editing and book layout and working with other people. And mm. yeah. And part of the timing too you know, Ramdas passed away the end of December 2019. Was this part of your grief process? Yeah. Yeah, that's been an interesting thing of exploring. I, Outside of this, what I actually work part-time at a local hospice where I lived as, live as a grief counselor right now. And it, so it's been interesting viewing a lot of the things that I've been doing in terms of that lens of grief and just all the ways that creativity and ritual and all these things, you know, they, they definitely help with it. And it's one of the ways that we keep, you know, memories alive and keep that love alive. And so it has been interesting for me to use that lens and framework and yeah, absolutely. Uh, putting this into book form and then also just realizing through the process, realizing just how deep of a thread Ramdas's teachings have run through my life. You know, it's just, I can't get away from it. Every writing, even if I'm not explicitly talking about him, you know, he's there. And so, mm. yeah, it definitely played a role deepening that for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we miss him so much and we feel his love so fully. Both are happening. Yeah. And I mean, that was, one of his biggest teachings, right, is that we can exist on multiple planes and the fact that we can feel sad and miss him and miss the sound of his voice and and also simultaneously that when we bring those memories to our mind, right, that, that love is felt right now in this present moment. And mm. it, it's it's incredible, actually, just how rich that's been. And one of the things that's really dawned on me is it was especially strong right after he died for about the first six months, but I still can tap into that, the sense that 
in a lot of ways, I actually feel closer to him now, even than when I lived with him at the house. And I could put all sorts of different belief systems around that, you know, but they all feel kind of cheap. You know, it's when just, you say closer, what do you mean? Like that he's just right here in my heart. Like when I, like that there's no, there, there's no separation, you know, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not trying to like impress him or please him or, you know, thinking about if I'm like close to him on Maui or if I'm far away from him physically. It's just when I bring his picture, like when I imagine his face in my mind, I mean, right now, in this, I mean, I just feel joy and love mm -hmm. just thinking about him. Mm. And there's also been a sense of permission, you know, because I knew that Ramdas never wanted people to put him on a pedestal. Um, and because I live with them and I kind of saw that so much, even after I moved out of the house, I never felt like I was allowed to put his picture on my altar. You know, oh, like, wow. Yeah, Cause I felt like he'd be mad at me or something. And there could you know, be Maharaji, there could be Hanuman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first time I, I did do it, but it was a picture of Ramdas with Maharaji and that was like my <laughs> way of cheating. <laughs> But yeah, after he died, it's just all that went away and it just didn't matter anymore. And so now, you know, I mm. still have a very big picture of Ramdas on my altar. And and when I look at his face and his eyes, I mean, it does, it brings me into that same presence as when I look at Maharaji or Hanuman. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny that you say that about the pictures because I've noticed around my own home how I, besides the bathroom, there's a picture of Ramdas and or Maharaji in every room of my house yeah. even in like these weird spots it's like behind the record player and above the mirror and behind the letters in the kitchen and it's just like he's just like a poking out from all these different spots yeah i love that when i feel like that because i know you had spent time you've been to the house and visited and i think it's a practice that we all learn from just seeing ramdas's house where just <laughs> He just literally had Maharaji and saints and holy beings like everywhere. <laughs> yeah, my home is very similar. <laughs> I almost can't let my eyes rest somewhere without seeing something, uh -huh. for lack of a better word, spiritual, an entity or a deity or a guru or a guide or a word or a phrase, or even just having flowers around, fresh flowers is to me a devotional act. Yeah. Do you, do you ever get hung up on... You know, as I was learning more and more about the tradition and just wanting to be respectful, right? Even just in my own home. And so like not pointing my feet towards, you know, like my altar or, and then just realizing like actually how hard that is when you have pictures everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing with the feet I know about, right? Like you're not supposed to show your bare feet to the teacher. Like your feet aren't supposed to be forward in a classic like Darshan classroom ashram type setting that that would be very disrespectful right. if you did that but i think in your home i would if it's just a picture it can be different i mean i think so it's just my own neurotic thing i mean I, <laughs> when i was really going through that I, I remember just you know i'm really trying hard to do all the things and i went back to ramdas's house you know i'd go back after after i'd moved out I'd go back sometimes to visit and sometimes the caregivers there needed to go on vacation. I got to sub in and, and one of the times I did that, and this was after I had been really making a, a practice of, you know, 
you know, not putting certain things on the floor and not pointing my feet in certain directions. And I'd really internalize this. And I go to Ram Dass's home and, and I'm really tripped out about like where to point my feet. And then I, I see him in his bed and he's laying out and then he has this, this giant picture of Maharaji, you know, directly so he could see it. So his feet are definitely pointed towards it. <laughs> and I saw that and I was like, okay, I think I can, I think I can let this go yeah. a bit. <laughs> yeah. I would ask myself, what would I think Ram Dass would say if I, he knew how obsessed I was about this? He would probably <laughs> say, he would probably laugh. He would laugh yeah. at the silliness of it, how much we can get spun out on those kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we above our bed, like, you know, at the cross the wall from the bedroom. So looking into the bed is this big painting of Maharaji. And so sometimes I look at that, I'm like, Maharaji gets to see it all. Because yeah. you're right in the bedroom across from the bed. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's the other side of it too is, I mean, all of this is supposed to be deepening our practice. And for me, I just, the gift of being able to see Maharaji first thing in the morning when I open my eyes, you know, I just... I don't want to let that go. Um, and I know Maharaji doesn't care. So exactly. Yeah. But it, it is also interesting. I mean, all of the, you know, a lot of stuff happens in bed, you know, things that we have shame about in our culture and all sorts of, you know, is this okay? You know, is it okay to be naked in front of our deities? You know, so it is interesting. These other lenses that get brought up when we have holy things all around it. I mean, it really allows us to kind of look at our stuff in a different way. I suppose for me, I navigate through it with a sense of non-duality, right? Or like who's actually labeling it as good or bad or right or wrong. And I think if I were to look at it, if I were to pretend I could see it from Maharaji's lens, he would love it all. And none of it would be unworthy or separate or not good enough. Yeah. And so kind of like in Ram Dass's experience, the first time he met Maharaji, when he says... He knew everything. He could read my mind. He knew everything about me and he loved me anyways. Mm-hmm. And that was like the, prof- like the profundity of that. And so here it is. It's like, you can see everything that happens in my bedroom and I know the love's not going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is, it is really incredible. Just uh, these things, I mean, they really do work on every layer of the mind. And uh Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think for my listeners, they would be curious a little bit to hear about how you got to be a caregiver for Ram Dass. I'm sure you've probably told that story a gazillion times. Yeah. Well, and I've been telling, <laughs> been telling it a lot lately uh, as I've had these opportunities to be on podcasts, but I can at least give a, a shortened version of it, which is that You know, my first openings into spirituality were definitely 100%, you know, psychedelic related. And I was also suffering a lot during that time. I was probably like 19 and just working through addiction stuff and just trying to, you know, figure out life is the way a lot of us when we're that age do. And... And I really came to psychedelics. I mean, it was, I was, it was curiosity and exploration, but I didn't necessarily know that there was some spiritual reality to tap into. So it kind of felt like it was news to me. 
um, when I started to open up to these different, we'll say depths of reality that I didn't have a good name for yet or a good nap, map to kind of No one had talked about them. We didn't know about them. Like if yeah. we were raised in a in religion in the United States, it was probably Christianity coming from our backgrounds. And that's something that feels quite separate and totally foreign and different than the, the realms that can be experienced through psychedelics or through a deep bhakti or meditation or whatever it might be. It's foreign for sure. So it yeah. felt foreign for you. Yeah. And that started a, a journey of, exploring and reading different spiritual texts and experimenting with different spiritual practices. And somewhere along the way, I came across Be Here Now. And it's something when I recently talked with Raghu Marcus from Love Serve Remember Foundation about this, it's something that he brought up is just how incredible it is that kind of one, two of psychedelics and Be Here Now, it still exists today, even from back in the late 60s. Um, but it definitely was that for me. I, when I read that book, it just, all my lights came on and, and that started a journey of reading more and more Ramdas books. And somewhere along the way, I just got this idea that I just wanted to meet Ramdas. And there's this whole kind of series of events that lined up. You know, just what year was that? Can you remember? Yeah, I can. I would have been... 23, uh, and I'm 35. So that would have been 12. Oh yeah, that makes sense. It would have been 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So, so like 2009. Yeah, that sounds about right. And yeah, I was at a place in my life where I was basically, I had no direction. So I was willing to give up anything you know, if there was a chance that I could go and see Ramdas, like I was willing to give up anything to go do that. Well, it sounds from reading your book too, you were also unplugged in lots of ways. Like you were kind of like gypsy free. How little can I have? I don't want to have a lot. I'm on like a little, I'm certainly counterculture outside of establishment. Yeah. I mean, at that point, yeah, at that point I had lived, this is something I haven't talked about on a podcast recently. So uh, I, I had spent a few months actually just living out of my car in the desert of New Mexico. Um, basically it was like my attempt to try and live like a sadhu. And I don't know how successful I was, but it was a sincere attempt. Did and... you stop brushing your teeth and stop brushing your hair? Did you wear a loincloth? No. I, but I was, I was taking showers like maybe weekly and they were by like <laughs> dumping water over my body and like, it was freezing cold. It was cold because in the, you know, this from kind of where you live, when people think of desert, they think of warm, but when you're in the high desert, um, especially in the winter months and early spring, it gets very cold and it yes. can be windy. Yeah. I remember, uh, trying to start fires at night when I was doing this and, and the wind was so bad, I couldn't do it. And so what I ended up figuring out, because I had to have a fire to like cook for myself, is I would put a blanket over me 
to like suffocate me in over the fire and I'd like start it and it'd be getting smoky and I'd like hold it for as long as I could bear and then take it off and then the wind would blow the fire out again and then I would try it again. So yeah, I, I definitely, that was kind of my If only style. you had a cow patty. <laughs> um, so I, me and a couple of friends, we got tickets to go to Maui and then because we knew Ramdas lived there and we had no connection, but we will stalk Ramdas. Yes. We will we find will, him. We, that was it. And <laughs> uh, I wrote to the foundation a couple of times and finally got this response that was, it wasn't a yes, but it was like, you know, maybe there's a chance, but you know, we, we had already bought the tickets, so we were going and it did work out and I did get to meet Ramdas and he was so kind and sweet and, present and there was three of us there me and my two friends I was with and my friend asked this because I wouldn't have had the nerve even though it was my idea he said you know Ramdas we just want to do whatever we can to be as close to you as possible so if you have any work you need done around the house we'll do it and Ramdas said well you know someone had given me this house to live in that's what he said um and but the, the property is a little bit too big for us to manage. So we always need help. So if you were around, maybe there would be something you could do. And that was it. I just knew what I was doing with my whole life. Yeah, and like so I just got the job. I, I did it. <laughs> and so I came back and finished up things. I was living in Seattle, Washington at the time. And then two months later, I flew to Maui and I found this guy in Paia, which is uh, maybe 20 minute drive away from where Ramdas lived in Haiku. And I was paying him like a hundred bucks a month in rent to sleep on his back porch and use his kitchen. And I just showed up at the house and started working as their gardener for a while. And then uh, eventually they asked me to move in and to be a caregiver full time. Yeah. Had you had any like CNA training? Did you know how to care for a human at that point? No. I did not. And at that point, Dasima was actually doing the majority of the actual physical caregiving. Um, you know, that was like her primary role. And they really, at that point, they always wanted a younger person there. It was really just because there was extra work they needed done to do work in the yard. And then also, you know, if Ramdas ever fell, they just needed someone that could like help pick him up. Um, and that did happen. They needed some muscle. Yeah. And yeah. when I was there is during the time when things started to shift where, you know, Ramdas started to get weaker, his good arm, uh, his tendon started to go bad. And so, cause he could actually do a lot of transfers on his own, you know, at mm. that point. Um, but that things started to change during my time when I was there. And that was also when Dasima, she was getting older herself and she started to have some knee issues. And so, you know, there was this kind of big transition and I started doing more and more. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, after when I left and uh, Krishna Prem came on and it was shortly after that, that then it was, there was two caregiver, you know, there was two younger people there. And then, then it came to three. And, um, so I was kind of there at the beginning of when things really started to, to shift. And how, how long were you a close caregiver like that for him? Um, so I was on Maui for three years total and the whole time. I mean, I was there solely for him, but I was living at the house for a little over two of those years. 
um, where I was, yeah, caregiving in some capacity at the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love how bold you were to just go. I love it. It takes a lot of courage. Yeah. This is what's interesting, though, is that, I mean, yeah, I was living a fairly free life at that point, And I was also, you know, young. And But even doing that, I mean, the act of just going because I had to, I, there was something so interesting about it because when I used to tell myself my story, that story, I did see it as just what can happen when you fully just go with what your heart says. But over time, I really started to question more as just where did that even come from? Because it, it was still out of, you know, out of character uh, to just think I could just go and essentially st- stalk this person and <laughs> just show up. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I really now do just see it as grace. I mean, it's just something that just happened to me. I mean, yes. really. Yeah. Tons of grace. Fully, yeah. fully, fully. I feel like your two buddies played a role. You see when you get more support, it's like the three of us are going to go and you can all convince each other it's a great idea and it's going to work out. Right. That's helpful. That's helpful when you can yeah. spread the enthusiasm out to get you there. And and I don't know if, I don't know how much you've talked about this on the podcast, but um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your kind of experience of, yeah, meeting Ram Dass and your continued relationship? Yeah, I had my spiritual awakening as a 15-year-old, also through the use of psychedelics. And I, you know, every and now in the current lexicon with psychedelics, it's all about integration, right? You hear that a lot. But then when we were kids, nobody talked about integration, right? It was just like, it happened to me and I was shattered and it was actually very difficult. And only last, literally last weekend did I realize, oh, I was on a journey of integration for like five years after that experience. I was figuring out, trying to figure out how do I make sense of what happened? Because it was so profound and I didn't, I couldn't just go back to pretending like reality is normal. And so I was the seeker and I didn't have teachers. I mean, there was no internet, right? It was just like, I would find a used book at the used bookstore and that would be a guide and a breadcrumb to a breadcrumb. And finally I found yoga. And then when I first started to practice yoga uh, as a 19, 20 year old, that I felt like then my integration began. I was yeah. waiting for it to find it until then. I, Cause I, again, I had no tools or teacher and didn't know what to do. But when I went to my yoga teacher training, I decided to become a a yoga teacher to work with the spiritual and psychological elements of people because that was what brought me to the practice. And that's how I've seen it and have always seen it. And anyways, on my way there, someone said casually, you should read Be Here Now. And I hadn't heard of Be Here Now at that point. And that was 2001, 2001. And I was in a used bookstore, which again, one of my favorite places. And I walked into this used bookstore in Vancouver, Washington, or Vancouver, um, British Columbia. And it was 
like a basement with books piled everywhere, stacked and stacked and stacked and just a mess and chaos, which is a delight to see. I love yeah. it. And I walked into the bookstore and I pulled a book off the shelf. And then I remembered like, oh yeah, somebody said I should get be here now because I kind of filed it away. And so I put the book down and I went to the man behind the counter and he was sitting behind piles of books all around him. And again, there's no computer or internet system, that kind of Was thing. there a cat? There's a cat on a pile. Uh -huh. And I said, do you happen to have Be Here Now by Ramdas? And he looked through whatever system he might have had at the time. It was an old man. And he said, no, I don't have him. I'm like, oh, okay. And so then I keep going through the store, looking around and looking at books. And then I thought, oh, I should go see that book that I pulled off the shelf when I first walked in. And I went back to it and I pulled it off the shelf and it was Be Here Now. I'd walked into the store and out of thousands of books, pulled it off the shelf right away. Wow. And so, yeah. of course, I bought it and read it. And when I read it like you, it just was, you know, it hit me in all the right places and made so much sense. And I felt from that point that he was a teacher because I would then turn to his books. And I also found that like a thrift store, audio cassettes, tapes. Uh -huh. And I would listen to him on tape, like these old tapes that had been recorded who knows when. And so just continued to follow him and his work through my own maturing and deepening. But I never crossed my mind that I was just going to go visit him, right? And I think at that point, he was on Maui already. And then when I was in relationship, when Krishna and I were starting to get together, independently, we came into the relationship with a love of Ramdas that we didn't have, hadn't ever talked about. But when we were like courting in the relationship, we had to drive far to see each other like nine hours. And he sent me the Here and Now podcast, which I hadn't heard before. And that was back in 2017 that he start, he sent that like, oh, you should check this out while you're driving. So then I kind of got turned back on again. And then he gave me Love Everyone, the story of Maharaji stories which I hadn't read either. And so we just between us, he was kind of like a thread between us, uh, like something that we shared in our relationship where in my previous relationship, I was coming out of a marriage, my partner, and I didn't have that kind of connection and didn't talk about spiritual things or teachers or things like that. It was something that I did, but not something that we shared together. Yeah. And then, I mean, I don't know how much of the story you want to hear, but... <laughs> When I decided to get divorced and uh, I got a little apartment and I had a friend coming through town who asked if he could stay with me and I had just rented this apartment to stay in and nobody even knew really that I was getting divorced at all. It was like the like freshest thing that had happened, but I felt like I couldn't tell him no because I did have a place for him to stay. I just got an apartment and I wasn't going to be there. I was actually not in town. So I kind of awkwardly said like, yeah, I... You're like, I know this is going to sound weird, but I'm actually getting divorced and I've got this place, but you can stay there. You know, this is how you can get in. And he came and he went to whatever he was doing and came back. And then when I came back to the apartment, like a week later, there was a little charm of Maharaji, you know, the ones uh, they give you at the, at the retreat for uh -huh. the necklaces. Yeah. And he was on his way to the spring retreat. He flew to the spring <laughs> retreat and came back. I didn't know what he was doing or where he was going, but he was on his way to that. And so then I put the necklace on, but the necklace that I was wearing 
this little picture of Maharaji because, you know, it was a little gift that he gave to me. And then, you know, time goes by and then Krishna and I, he was Trevor at the time, we're beginning to spend time together. And one of the first times that we had spent time together, he was like, you know, when life just tells you, like, you know how you see signs and you just know it's the direction that you are supposed to go in, like life presents you with a sign. And it's like, yeah, I, I get that. I know, I, of course, I, fall, I look for those all the time. And then he looks down and he sees the picture of Maharaji on my necklace and he starts crying. He's like, I can't believe that you're wearing that. I just printed out a picture of Maharaji for myself to help wow. me. And here he is right on you, with you. And that was a pretty special moment. Yeah. And then together, as we were forming in a relationship, we would kind of daydream, like, imagine if we could ever go to a Ramdas retreat in Maui. That'll never happen. We'll never be able to go. Again, this is where I'm like, you just went. I'm always like, there's no possible way that's going to happen, but boy, do I want it to happen. And then the next year, he decided to create the album with Ramdas. And when he said, finally, like, he kind of inked, like little inklings of like, I might ask Raghu, this might happen. And I said, well, if you go, I have to go with you. I have to go with you. And he's like, okay. And so then when he got the go ahead, I'm like this, there's like a week that I could attend and be there with you. Can it happen that I can go at the same time? He's like, yeah. So we made it happen where I got to go too. He went a, f a couple days ahead of me and I met him there and he had his experience with Dasima, you know, who's kind of like the gatekeeper and can come across uh -huh. as like protective. Yeah. Because that is part of what her job. And he said, you know, I'm going to go record him again and I want you to come. But I don't know if Dasima is going to let you see him. <laughs> just be just be forewarned. I don't want you to get your heart broken. And I'm like, <laughs> OK, fine, fine. I get it. I'm coming. I'll come to the house. So he came to the house and he's there and Dasima's there. And there was a... um Indian woman visiting, you know, she was on her pilgrimage retreat and I see Ram Das, and he's sitting in his chair and he just beams up and looks at me and he starts laughing and wagging his finger and he looks at me, he's just like, there she is, there she is, that's kind of what he's saying, there she is and just like welcomes me in like I was an old friend that he was waiting for uh -huh. and then we got to be with him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And it was the greatest, one of the greatest moments of my life is that time that we got to spend with him. Just so yeah. deep and rich and recording and rewarding and being able to be in his room and his study, you know, he's all hooked up for the album to do the recordings. And I'm sitting there with him kind of holding and being in the space and just getting to like absorb it all and love it all. And, <sighs> yeah, it just still touches me so deeply. And oh. that was the day that he named us Krishna and Radha also. Yeah. No, <laughs> Krishna told me the, the story of that. And, you know, he tells, there's a lot of humor in that, the way he tells it, <laughs> um, the, you know, just specifically his name. And it's like, <laughs> he was so confused. Sure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because he was like there, like I said, a couple days before me and he, we were talking on the phone. He said, I might ask Ram Das for a name. What do you think it's going to be? 
I said, I don't know what it's going to be, but I have a feeling it's going to just be one word. He's like, really? One word? He's like, no, I'm sure it's going to be two words. And I'm like, no. I'm like, I don't know what the one word would be, but I just get that sense it's going to be one word. And then it was, it was just Krishna. And that's why I was like, are you sure it's just Krishna? <laughs> and I'm like, there's no just Krishna. You don't say just Krishna. <laughs> and as soon as he said to him, your name is Krishna, I knew he's about to tell me my name is Radha. It just wow. like went through me. I'm like, he's, I know he's going to say that. And then he did. He looked straight at me and just said, and you, you are Radha. And he slapped his thigh and he just started laughing. He thought it was the funniest thing. And then we laughed together and I was, it was super beautiful and amazing. And of course, Krishna didn't have any idea who Krishna and Radha were in that moment. And then the next day we were out and what's the town that you said with the P that's nearby? Paia. Paia. So we were out mm -hmm. in Paia and like the little shops and I kid you not, we would go into a store and there'd be like Govinda Jaya Jaya playing on the speakers and we'd go into the next store and there's a statue of Krishna and we go into the next store and it's like a pillowcase with Radha and Krishna and we go into the next store and it's a tapestry with Radha and Krishna and we go into the next store and it's a picture of Radha and Krishna which is like everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Like the universe saying, yep, that's you. There it is. There it is. There it is. That's incredible. Yeah. It's also incredible just thinking about how many people like one of the top moments of their life was just meeting Ramdas. Yes. Yeah. It's also incredible just how many of us that, because I mean, you and I are basically meeting for the first time, right? But be because we like share that, that like our time with Ramdas is like some of the most meaningful moments in our life, like I just instantly feel a connection with you. So it's also just interesting the sense of just how family can grow out of this mutual love and mm. yeah that's like the sat song right yeah that's I mean, the that's, sangha because when we talk about these things right the importance of satsang spiritual community and that makes sense like oh yeah like that's good for me but when you're on the inside and you realize that it's just well this is a group of people where we all love the same thing and this thing that we all love is just pointing us back into the deepest reach of our own heart. It's just helping us to dive even deeper into love and arrest even deeper into love. And I, I, it just, it takes away that sense of dryness. Like satsang is spiritual community. It is just a community of love. It's just people that love each other because we love the same thing. And that love is orienting us back to the love in our own heart. And mm. it, it, it really is an incredible, incredible thing. Yeah, it's um, it's a community built around feeling love like you're describing, which I think in and of itself is quite unique, because it's not like a it's not a, it's it's things and not things. I was going to say it's not about learning, but it is about learning, or it's not about competition, but there certainly is still competition. But it's not about a goal together, but there is somewhat of a goal at the same time, but I guess I don't know quite how to describe it, but it is uniquely powerful in the personal sense. I feel in satsang, I'm able to be like my wholest self, which includes yeah. loving. Whereas in other groups, the love is more protected. If that makes yeah. sense. It does. And it, 
some of the things you said make me think about because we all have you know just because we fall into this community we still have all our same old stuff but there is something really incredible when we know that other people are doing their work and we're doing our work and that that love is the most important thing and it's just all that other stuff's still there, but it just doesn't quite get caught in the way in the same way in terms of our interpersonal dynamics. Mm-hmm. But like think- competition still happens and people still bicker and this other stuff happens, but it's it's easier to drop back and to yeah, kind of fall back into that spacious loving awareness about it all. I think the thing that you said there is it's people that are all doing their work as an important piece that we can trust in that environment to the degree that they're capable and are people want to become better humans yeah. and we fail at that, but we know at least that's we're, we're actively saying this is what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I'm going to, and all, the only way I can get there is through doing my work. And yeah. that's a, actually a painful process too. It definitely can be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm leading a weekend for my yoga teacher training students, my first immersion that's explicitly on bhakti yoga. Mm. Even though I've been a bhakti yogi forever, it's it's that's been I guess within my community as a teacher I it, I express it and share it, but I do it among other things, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is my first time being like, I'm giving you full bhakti download. We're gonna all get in this together and I'm gonna share as much as I can. What would you say to someone who is new to bhakti to try to describe that path of devotion and love? Yeah, that's a great question. I wanna start by saying that I think it's amazing that you are doing a bhakti retreat and it's you know, an explicitly bhakti retreat because I do think that, um, I think there's several different reasons for it, but I do think that bhakti is one of the things that can be the hardest for us in the West to get into or to wrap our mind around. And what happens because of that is that when we explain it, obviously we want it to be accessible, we tend to try and water it down a little bit or we we express it in terms of say mindfulness or you know other practices or paths that you know are authentic and beautiful in their own right but just this sense of being able to express bhakti with its own internal logic structure because it does work differently you know it is its own unique path and the way that i often explain it is So one of the things that happens to many of us, it doesn't have to go in this order, but this is the order that it kind of went for me and I kind of got a glimpse that maybe you have a similar trajectory with this and a lot of us do, where maybe it's through psychedelics or some other, maybe a spontaneous awakening or just through practicing meditation for a while. We, We touch this place in our being that's deeper than the mind and it's deeper than the body and it's deeper than our personality and it's deeper than our name and it's deeper than the ups or downs of life. And when we touch that place, that spacious awareness itself, um, a couple of things, we just realize a couple of things that aren't necessarily 
rational understandings, but it's just this awakening that happens when we touch our true nature, which is that one, that this space is eternal, and two, that it actually touches all that other stuff. So our thoughts and our physical sensations in our body and other people and even our personality, it's all held in this container. And in fact, it's all a manifestation of that. And at some point for many of us, we realize that one of the best words that we have for this space um, could be the word God, right? As the the manifestation of everything and also the creator of everything and also the spaciousness behind everything and um, or maybe the word love and there's this sense when we touch it that that there's this element of the universe that is inherently lovable that existence itself is inherently lovable and the other thing that happens when we touch this space is and this doesn't happen to everyone, but for those of us that our kind of root path through this life is bhakti or devotion or love, is that we just fall madly in love, right? With that essence that we are and that is everything, but we fall in love with it. Um, in fact, one of my earliest psychedelic experiences uh, where I got to kind of see that this was my root path is I, I had an experience through, it was through doing some pranayama and meditating on LSD. And uh, I, I basically left my body. And when I left my body, I wasn't breathing because I had stopped breathing. And so I had this moment of freaking out and essentially decided like, well, there's nothing I can do anyway. And this is a chance to figure out if all this is real. And you know, once my mind subsided, then there was that clear light of consciousness, right? And because I wasn't that well practiced, it didn't necessarily last that long. But what blows me away is that after touching that space, the very first thoughts that came into my mind after were three words. It was, I love you. And they were spontaneous thoughts. Like, it didn't feel like I had control of them. It was, it was like God showing me, you know, what what my root relationship is, you know, with this essence of truth. And once that gets awakened, once we have this sense that that is our path through this life, then things change because that means that that love affair, that love relationship then becomes our primary vehicle for our awakening. Um, so now there's a whole new set of practices that don't necessarily involve detachment or meditation. I mean, they, they can involve that. But now we're doing practices that are actively opening our heart, like actively keeping that love affair alive. And so um, things like looking at pictures of holy beings, right? Like looking at a picture of Krishna or Radha, you know, there's all different ways we can relate to that. But these images were created in a devotional mood. I mean, they are meant to inspire devotion. And when you look at them, actually right now above my computer, I have um an image of the Hanuman Murti from Taos, New Mexico, right? It's gorgeous. It's just this beautiful image. And when I look at it, my heart opens right up. You know, I'm looking at a picture of my beloved. And when I look at Hanuman, I get to be in that state of love. And what the teachings say on the devotional path, the Narada Bhakti Sutras, for instance, talks about how devotion isn't just the path, it's also the reward. So, love is the essence of everything, then 
on the devotional path, something that's often said is, well, why wait? Why don't we just practice love now? Why don't we just make love our primary practice so that kind of like in maybe Buddhism, they talk about how, you know, every step on the way to enlightenment is enlightenment. Well, for bhakti, we say that um, on the way to love, we get there by just practicing love and that that love itself, because it's self-fulfilling in the moment, um, in a sense, we don't really do it for any purpose other than once our heart gets a little taste of it, um, over time what starts to happen is that we just start to want that more and more and more. And so we start to turn ourselves more and more to that love. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. I think you articulated it beautifully. I think that you articulated it beautifully. I absolutely agree. And thank you. Thank you for that explanation because it is uh, from the outside odd or inexplicable or even confusing. But when you're inside of it, practicing, it is, it's, it sounds silly to say, and that's my judgment around it, I suppose, like, yeah, I'm just loving everything around me all of the time. And these yeah. deities, for whatever reason, an image of Hanuman fills me with love. And I don't yeah. know why exactly, but it speaks to my soul and I certainly can get behind it because my experience of it is true. And the more that I surrender to that love, to like saying, I love you, you're important to me, my attention is going there, this is important enough to me to learn the Hanuman Chalisa, to chant, to read the text, to fall into that space through my own intentional effort out of just love. And then the love, the translation of that is also service. Like when I'm giving my life force energy, time, attention to something, that's a gift. And then that, yeah. the ripple out is like, and wow, who else needs help? Or how else can I yeah. serve? And yeah. that is so fulfilling. Absolutely. And that makes me think about, so, you know, it, it's written about the Hanuman specifically, right? That the deity Hanuman, who for people listening is a monkey-like God and is said to be both the perfect devotee and the perfect servant and a manifestation of God, right? Well, the state that Hanuman is in is that Hanuman has one pointed devotion to God, but Hanuman also at all times, every moment knows that God is literally everyone and everything. And so that makes Hanuman be in a perpetual state of joyful service. So for me, that's, that's where the devotional path connects to uh, my desire of just being in service to the world, right? Because I think about like globally, the way we're living as a global family, we don't actually love everyone. You know, we, we are not acting as a way, as a community, as if everyone is a manifestation of God. We're not acting in a way as if the earth is a manifestation of God. And so when we see that, that causes pain in the heart. I mean, naturally, if, if we haven't numbed to it and if, we, if we're starting to awaken that, I mean, it causes pain. And that's a sign to turn our attention to those things and to actually practice seeing 
God in those areas where maybe we've been programmed to have these blind spots, these certain people or areas of life where we've kind of turned a blind eye to. And that's, that becomes a form then of practicing seeing God everywhere through the act of service. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just yesterday I participated in the chant for love. You know, I don't know if you saw that online that I think his name Radhika Das put together uh-huh. with different kirtan artists. And, you know, India and the lineage from there is ours, right? Like, yeah. and I don't say that as mean like mine, I'm taking it, I'm, it's, I'm appropriating it, but I, it's what I'm connected to when I say yeah. ours. Like it's our kind of through line, like an umbilical cord. And so... Like right now, as India is suffering through COVID, then there's the feeling of what can we do to support and how can we be of help? And so through this fundraiser, there's that, giving money. It's nice to be able to give money to someone who I feel like, okay, they're going to know what to do with it. If I just give the money, they'll have the way. But then it was also five hours of chanting the Maha Mantra of Hare Krishna. And within this tradition we feel as if that in itself is impactful to sure. alleviate suffering. What do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's true. I, there, the, the names of God are invariably healing um, for self and others. And, but when you were chanting those right for those five hours, um, there was also an intention. I mean, your attention was set on the people of India who are greatly suffering. And that's also, um, there's another element too, right? Where these practices are helping us um, come into maybe a clear consciousness space. And then we turn our attention to an area of the world that is tremendously suffering right now. I mean, it's, um, it's pretty heartbreaking what's happening in India. And so, you know, that practice of chanting the names that allows us to then touch a place in our heart that is able to maybe bear the unbearable more, right? Mm. We're, we're able to hold our awareness on, on suffering in, in a clear way, which then allows us to respond in maybe a more effective way. And so, you know, it's definitely my personal view that prayers are necessary. I I also don't feel like it's enough on its own. I mean, I I think Mm -hmm. prayers are the most powerful when they're backed by some form of action. And Mm -hmm. right now, I mean, that's, I think that's the reality is um, us in the United States, what we can do is, is donate money. Um, And I, you know, I personally feel uh, a responsibility. I mean, I have gained what I have gained uh, from the practices and teachings that have come down through India is priceless, right? I mean, I, I can't put a price on it. And then just recognizing that um, the ability for me to even have access to these is because an entire people and culture for thousands of years have kept these traditions alive. And um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, absolutely, uh, there is a sense. I mean, that's where dharma comes in. You know, there's this sense of, of when there's a relationship there, it, 
you 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 want to give back in some sense and i feel like whatever i can donate right now i mean it's just going to be a small drop in yeah. the great pond that i've gained from yeah i i felt it was important when you said through the act of prayer or chanting it allows us to be with the suffering that is happening because i think that that's actually a very potent true piece of it and that in this time that we're in call it what you want an awakening or an unveiling the, a shift one of the main asks is to turn towards the shadow as a collective more fully period and yeah. we need help doing that but that's the pathway through it's to integrate it and transform it and come to you know so that the sun rises in a, on a new beginning, which I feel like we're at the beginning of a sunrise. Yeah. So I, I suppose in that way, I mean, our tendency, if especially within our culture and how we're programmed, it's things are kind of ingested so quickly, you know, we're on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And numb also yeah. to so much because they're so, it's so overwhelming that's then personally the me being able to sit with the suffering that's happening in India and be with it for an extended period of time and do what I can is better than I do with other things. Yeah. And it, it is important because, you know, for instance, when we think about like issues like global climate change, it, we are so, when we're a little bit too quick to just action alone, it, in a way, it, it's like another distraction technique. It, it is a numbing strategy. I mean, that's why, like, you know, like, yes, of course, we should change light bulbs in our home. And yes, we should inflate our tires and, you know, all these things. But this idea that, that I personally, just with my own body, that there's something that I can do that is going to rectify global climate change i mean that is a complete myth and if instead like yes i do those things whatever i can do but if instead i just allow myself in little doses because uh, it is kind of overwhelmingly immense but the more i can allow myself to touch uh, just how deep of the pain exists there and just all the grief it's it's a different way of working with it because it's just a recognition that um, if we are going to collectively get through this, whether it's climate change or the reality that um, pandemics are not uh, one country's issue anymore, all of these things are global issues and, and all these things are connected too, um, then, then bearing witness becomes extremely important because it's, we start to, instead of see ourselves as these individuals, we see ourselves as cells of this overall mm. body. And what's, if, if we are going to get through all these things and to take care of each other, it's going to require a large percentage of us just being deeply aware of this grief that... Um, bearing witness. I, I think that we're, we're feeling. Yeah. yeah, bearing witness. That's a great phrase. Joanna Macy, she and her work... Um, with the collective ecological grief that we all feel, even if we're not aware that we feel it, is right. really powerful. I'm yeah. grateful to her. But yes, bearing witness. 
to it in small doses or to the dose level that you can handle and then assimilating, integrating, transmuting, loving, loving it all anyways. And at the same time, we're loving, we're loving humanity, even in that shadow of ignorance. Yeah. And each new layer of these things, you know, as we are able to bear witness in deeper ways, the type of action that that inspires starts to change, right? You know, it's, um, and that's, and so, and we still do those actions too, but we also see bearing witness as its own practice, knowing that that's what's going to deepen wisdom, which is, you know, potentially going to lead to more fruitful action down the road. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And on and on we go. On and on we go. <sighs> Thank you for your time, Sitaram Das. Sitaram Das. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. I mean, this is... It's cool. We just get to come together and hang out and talk about love and the plight of the world and and... And it's all related in the fact that in this short time, we can kind of just get to the crux of things. I mean, that's, that's yeah, another I, one of the joys of satsang. It is for sure. It is for sure. And I'm glad that you have got Ramdas on your altar now. I had an interesting moment about a month or two ago where I was kind of tripped out just within our like mm, programming of God as like old white man right? Like I was raised in a, in a Roman Catholic tradition and that was like the image that we would have. And then coming out of that, that you're kind of like anti that image that you, we were programmed with. And then now to come full circle where it's like, oh, it is an old white man for me, actually. <laughs> it looks just like an old white man and he's on my uh-huh. altar. <laughs> the cosmic yeah. joke of that was wonderful when I realized it, that I could have an old white man as God. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. And some of the pictures of Ramdas, especially I think some of the ones from the nineties where he's like bald and has a mustache, like <laughs> it's like some of them are just very much just you know, old white man Ramdas. Um but I I'm in love with all of the pictures of mm-hmm. him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you you probably don't know the Teletubbies? But there's a cartoon, the Teletubbies, where there's like a baby's face floating in the sun would be part of the show. And now I just uh-huh. imagine Ram Dass, his face floating in the sun, like in Teletubbies. And I'm like, it is the old man in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or like the I, I, like Ram behind you, right? The the red tapestry that you've got there on your wall. Right. Yeah, the Ram in the sun. Yeah, I mean, I even now have a friend gave this to me, but uh, it was an artist made. They took a picture of Ramdas and they kind of added some art to it, and they put it on a T-shirt. And I, I'm just one of those cheesy people now. I will like walk around. I do it on like weekends when I'm not gonna, but I still go out shopping in it. Like I just walk around in my shirt with Ram, <laughs> Ramdas on it. Me too. I've got my Ramdas paraphernalia. I'm wearing one right now. This one. This is from the retreat. Oh, yeah, I got that shirt. (laughs) Not love Ramdas at the bottom. Krishna and I, we happened to be, I'm not going to tell you why, but we were at Urban Outfitters 
uh, about a month ago. And in Urban Outfitters, there was a blue and white tie-dyed shirt embroidered in the middle of it said, love everyone. Uh, Can you believe that? I mean... He bought it. He wears it. He's like, that's for me. I'm getting that. (laughs) He wears his Urban Outfitters love everyone shirt. That's great. I also love the added... um... Because people are going to ask him where he got that. Yes. <laughs> so he yeah, like constantly... I want one of those. Where'd you get the Love Everyone shirt? Because it's cool. It's stylish. Maharaji and Urban Outfitters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, again, thank you. Uh, do you want to mention before we go anything else that you're working on or how people can find you or yeah. things that you're uh, involved thank you. in? Yeah, I would like to mention a couple of things. So uh, my book, From and For God, it is acting as a fundraiser for two causes that are really near and dear to my heart. So one of them is Hanuman Maui. And that is the loving awareness sanctuary that has grown out of Ramdas's home. So after Ramdas left his body, I was there on Maui and this council had kind of formed in the living room and we were all there and there was this discussion about, you know, what to do with the house. And there was essentially a consensus that there's just a certain power there and that that essence of loving awareness that Ramdas embodied so deeply, it's it's there at that space. And as Ramdas often said, you know, it's it's truly Maharaji's house. I mean mm-hmm. it's Neem Kurli Baba's house and Maharaji's there. And so there was a decision to, to keep the house and we didn't necessarily know all the details of how that would work. And around that same time, uh, this person, Steve Dahlman, it was actually a year or two before that, he had asked Ramdas if he should start a Hanuman temple on Maui. And Ramdas gave him his blessings for that. And he found a local, it was a Hawaiian carver to make this beautiful Hawaiian uh, Hanuman murti actually out of monkey pot wood. Um, And he was looking for a temple space. He just had it. He kind of had turned his small little like one bedroom apartment into a temple and Satsang would come there for retreats and things. And, but he was looking for a permanent home and hadn't found one. And so uh, it just kind of made sense to, since Ramdas gave the blessings for Hanuman temple to make the Hanuman temple be at Ramdas's home at what is now Hanuman Maui. And so uh, there's a fundraiser happening now. I mean, it went on hold. I mean, it still exists, but it essentially hasn't been promoted in the last week. Just with everything happening in India, it just felt important for people to devote their resources there. Um, But, you know, this Hanuman temple still needs to be built. And so uh, it's one of the projects happening is uh, it will be built this summer is we are building a small Hanuman Mandir on the property so that the Hanuman Murti has a proper home to live. And this is a cause that is deeply important to me. And so half the proceeds from the book go specifically towards that. And then the other half goes uh, towards the service work I do with the Kirtan and service group. I'm a part of Kripa, um, which is made up of other Ramdas caregivers. And um, specifically, we do a lot of outreach to the prison system and probably in the next year, we'll be able to start going back again. Um, and so, yeah, I did, I did just want to take a mention 
a moment to mention those things and of course I'll you know I'll send you the the links and all yeah, that. Yeah, so your book can they get it on a website? Do you have a site they they can buy it or is it on Amazon? Yeah. From and it's, for it's, God. It's everywhere books are sold online. Okay. And it does have its own website where people can you know pick their favorite bookstore to get it from from and for god.com. Um you can also order it directly through Hanuman Maui or through Kripa's website. Mm -hmm. um, and Hanuman Maui, Amazon. would that be HanumanMaui.com? Dot org. Dot org. HanumanMaui.org. And so you're building the Hanuman Mandir, which is a temple for the Murti, the statue. And his home is now Hanuman Maui, is how it's known. And is that a place where people can come on pilgrimage? Yes. You know, things shortly after this was decided, then COVID happened. And so it was uh, both in a way it ended up being a blessing because it, I think, gave a lot of time to really set up because, you know, everything it's set up as Ramdas's home. And so now just making it set up as a true sanctuary for people to be able to come. And um, so it's been nice to have, I think, a little bit of breathing room, mm. but even now people can go, you know, they just, there's a contact page at Hanuman Maui. They just reach out and ask and, you know, they just follow the COVID protocols and things. And, um, but gotcha. if, if people are there, they can go visit. And, but the idea of also building the Mandir is that, um, there'll be much, it'll be able to have much wider kind of visitation hours, you know, mm. for the property and the temple. And then, you know, so the room that Ramdas left his body and, I will tell you, you know, the next time you go to Maui, it when you go into that room, it is so powerful. I mean, it it really truly feels as if Ramdas is right there in front of you. Um, and essentially, the, the that room, uh, the upstairs study, Ramdas's study, has been kept as as a sacred space in the the uh, essentially like the tucket that Ramdas's body laid out on for those three days. Um, it's still there in the same space it was and fresh flowers are offered daily and um, the sacred silence has been kept in the room. And and so, you know, that will also be open, you know, obviously because people go into the house and part of the way we're making it all work is there's, you know, also people living in the house. Um, so, you know, there's less visitation hours during the day to be able to go up there versus the temple will be able to have much wider hours. But um yeah, that's that's what's happening there, and um, and truly making the ground sacred with the gardens and mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm, mm. Okay, beautiful, wonderful. Thank you. I love it. Good luck on all of that fundraising. I'm sure it will come together, as it always yeah. does. Yeah. It definitely will. Thank you for your um, contribution to that with your book, and your book is just a delight. Like I said, when we started, I just loved reading it. I could feel the bhakti, the love, the wisdom, the devotion in it. So thank you for that transmission. Cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I mean, really, yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. I look forward to connecting again, definitely, for sure. Cool. Have a beautiful day. Yep. Ram, ram. Well. Ram, ram. Ram, ram.